It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni. Today we're going to talk about the rehabilitation of ex-offenders or re-entrance into our communities. The statistics can be startling. The United States, having less than 5% of the world's population, currently has nearly 25% of the world's prisoners. For every 100,000 Americans, nearly 700 are currently incarcerated. This is the highest rate in the developed world. Hasn't always been this way. Incarceration rates held steady up until the 1970s. And at that point, a skyward trajectory began, landing us at a 500% increase in our prison population. Here in Franklin County, 2,400 ex-offenders are released back into the community every year. Now, while the challenges are there, the trends about rehabilitation in Franklin County are promising thanks in large part to the efforts of our guests today. Dr. Kim Eaton runs the Franklin County Day Reporting Center, where offenders are given a chance to leave prison early in order to become more productive members of society. We'll hear what's being done to help these offenders get out and stay out of the system. Dr. Eaton, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Uh, Let's just start with telling us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got to where you are, and just a little bit of your backstory. Okay, well, I'm a social worker. Um, I have a PhD in clinical social work, and prior to coming to the county, I ran a girls' group home in Maryland for 10 years. And when I uh, was burnt out at that job, I applied for the day reporting center. I asked my husband, you know, what do you think about this job? And he said, what is it? And I said, well, I I don't really know, but I think I could do it. (laughs) So being a good husband, he said, sure, sure, you can do that. So when I applied for the job, I remember that I was interviewed by all the judges, all the county commissioners, the current warden. The, uh, all of them. All of them. Now, was the day reporting center, did it exist yet? It, it didn't exist. So you were bringing an idea to them. Correct. They okay. had an idea and they wanted me to create it. Oh, okay. Very good. So um, I remember uh, Judge Walsh asked me, well, you've only ever worked with juveniles. How do you think that will relate to you working with adult offenders? And I said, believe me, if you've dealt with an out-of-control 14-year-old girl, you can deal with anyone. <laughs> right, right. And that's what I found. It, you know, this population is uh, very easy to work with because they are there to get treatment and help. And They're committed. And, uh, yeah, and if they're not, they quickly find out that we're a place that wants to help them. Mm-hmm. And so that barrier comes down and they become much more comfortable being themselves and, and uh, receiving the help that they need. So. Right, so how long uh, has the Day Reporting Center been open? And um, yeah, tell us how long you've been in business. So we opened in April 2006. Oh, wow. So here we are, it's something like 12 years later. Yeah. Um, still going strong and hoping that we're uh, still treating people with respect and giving them the help that they need. And I think that our statistics show that that is true. Yeah, those statistics you presented uh, at the county commissioner's meeting yesterday, I think we should go straight into that. And if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the recidivism rates and some of your successes, because what I heard in that uh, meeting yesterday was a lot of success on your part. So tell us about that. So when we look at success rates, if we compare it to national rates for recidivism, 
nationally, we're looking at a 65% recidivism rate, people who have been to jail and then return. So in Franklin County, our recidivism rate hovers in the 50% to 60%, that people who are in the jail currently have been there at least one time before. Now, these people have not, never engaged in any services or programs, they're just released? They could have. They okay. could have had services in the past, um, but that they weren't ready maybe to uh, make changes in their life. And so when they come to us and get through our program, then I track every person and look at how they're doing later. So the study I just did was for on our 2014 and 2015 graduates. And first, I'd like to say that we have a very high graduation rate compared to many programs. Now, granted, they are court-ordered to our program, so that is a little bit of incentive for them to show up. Right. Can I, I want to ask you a question about that. I'm very curious about how you get your clientele, let's call them. So they are court-ordered. They don't have an option. Correct. Now, does that relate in any way to their, their, the crime they committed? It's related mainly to how many times they've been in the system and maybe they've failed out of other programs mm -hmm. or maybe they've asked for help. Mm -hmm. Like the gentleman who spoke yesterday who yeah. said I failed out and, and I realized I needed help. So there are some crimes that we don't take. We, we don't take seriously violent people, mm -hmm. but just about everyone else. So we get our referrals from the jail pre-release department and also from adult probation. The court could also directly sentence someone to the day reporting center. Mm -hmm. And when they come in, then we assess them to see what their risk and needs are. And they go through our program accordingly based on what, the, what that comes out to be. So in looking at recidivism, I specifically look at new charges because some you can define recidivism many ways but the cleanest way to look at recidivism is did someone get a new charge and mm -hmm. were they convicted how else would you define it you could define it as a return to jail for a probation violation oh, okay but because that's subjective to the county that you're in it's not mm -hmm. a very good assessment in my so opinion. that could be a minor offense like Correct. not reporting or something like that absolutely mm -hmm. so i look at new charges mm -hmm. and in looking at that since nationally new charge recidivism is about 65%, the fact that for 2014 and 15, ours hovered around 20%, that's an excellent outcome. Yeah, that is. And on top of that, when you look at how many of those offenses resulted in any jail time, and some of that jail time was a couple days, the average was 90 days, mm -hmm. that, that hovered between 12 and 14%. Mm -hmm. So that's extremely low. That is extremely low. How does that compare within the state? Have you looked at those numbers? The state is... Because nationally, you're, you're, right. you're blowing it out of the water. Right. I mean, and pretty much the state, counties throughout the state are about the same rate as nationally. Okay. You know, it's, it's really hard to get those kind of numbers. It's, it's hard to track. I'm one of the only programs in the nation that has a day reporting center that actually tracks as much as I do. Now, I find that fascinating. Why aren't they tracking it? Well, I mean, because it's it's very labor intensive. You know, it's it takes a lot of time. I do you have some time. system set up that is more effective, some model? I've shared my model and tracking sheets with other uh, agencies throughout the United States. We've had visitors from everywhere come to our day reporting center. We're known as the Franklin model. Really? Yeah. It's pretty exciting, actually, when you think about it. But I've had people from 
um, Colorado and Nevada and Florida, West Virginia, Virginia. They're Tennessee. all coming here to see the Franklin model. They all have over the years. Many of the counties in, Fra in Pennsylvania have come as well. I usually always tell them I'll, I'll go on the road and visit them if they need me to. <laughs> hey, I'll take sure. a trip to Ohio or California. So yeah, Focus on California. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Especially Ohio. in February. <laughs> exactly. And um, we've done a lot of exciting things over the years. One of the things that we did, we opened in 2006, and in 2007, I talked to Dan Hoover, who's the chief of probation, and I said, geez, I am not having any success with our opiate addicts, specifically heroin addicts. Okay. They come in and they go right back out again. And at that point in time, if someone um, gave a positive drug screen for heroin, we were immediately looking at incarceration for their safety. Okay. And then we would wait until a treatment bed was open for them to have inpatient treatment. So we were batting zero on those people. So we talked it over and he said, um, well, you know, I have a fund um, that is mandated for treatment use. Mm -hmm. And you could use that fund to support a medication-assisted treatment program or a MAT program. Okay. So I partnered up with a couple doctor's offices and we started providing people with Suboxone and the doctors would see them, I would pay those bills through a court order, and then we'd pay for the medication. We did that for many years. I haven't done it lately because now the system has caught up to the epidemic. When I hear the word epidemic, I kind of chuckle because I'm Why's like, that? well, you know, that kind of started way back before 2015. Yeah. We've been dealing with this for a long time. It's just finally coming has to that the forefront. But that epidemic has morphed a little, hasn't it? Well, it has morphed, but we're seeing more overdoses. So that was exciting that we did that. In fact, I spoke at a couple um, drug court conferences um, about the program because people wanted to replicate what we did here. So we've had a lot of success. We also looked at a recidivism rate over more than four years, and that is unheard of. Most programs will look at recidivism for 18 months and not look any further. That, that, that's kind of mind-blowing. In 18 months, I mean, a lot of people can keep it together. Well, Four years, though, I mean, that's a, that's a tougher putt if you're especially... You better addict. believe it. So, you know, think about that. But, you know, statistics, we can do what we want with. So if right. we only look at 18 months, we can maybe have a really nice outcome. But when you're getting down and dirty and looking over four years, that says something. Well, I wonder That's why long term. It is. And I wonder why there isn't more of a national standard to say, you know, as we just discussed, 18 months, you know, you can fudge statistics. Four years, you mm -hmm. can't. It's either working or it's not. There's not an, a national definition of recidivism either, which is a little mind boggling as well. So that means everybody can generate their mm -hmm. own statistics. So we don't really know what's going on. Exactly. I want to circle back to something, Suboxone. Mm -hmm. Now... In my reading, my understanding, this also can cause a, a level of addiction. Do you find that to be true in your experience, or they're able to come off the Suboxone? Or Suboxone, if you are not, if, if you're what we call opiate naive, like you don't take opiates, mm -hmm. and you take Suboxone, you'll get what we call a beer buzz from. Like if you had a couple beers and that feeling, mm -hmm. that's what Suboxone will give you. It won't give you the high that you would get from an opiate like mm -hmm. heroin. Mm -hmm. But if you are a heroin addict and you take Suboxone, it'll block those brain centers that make you crave it. Mm -hmm. And so 
that is why it's effective. How long do they need to stay on that? Well, you know, I'm asked that all the time. And so, you know, I tell people, it's up to you and your doctor. Right. And you're not walking around with a big S on your head to tell everybody that you're taking it. So how about you just give yourself a minute? You didn't become an addict overnight. You're not going to be at a place where you can manage this addiction on your own overnight. So just give yourself a minute and decide down the road if that's something that you can come off of. Most people do come off of it. You know, everybody's just trying to get their needs met. That's how I I look at people when I dealt with kids and I did a lot of training for the state of Maryland on dealing with, with juveniles. And I said, all behavior has meaning. And that's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. All of our behavior means something. We may not be very good at asking for help, but we can sure be pretty good about showing we need help. Mm -hmm. It just might not look nice to the people that are the helpers. Mm -hmm. And we look at that and go, "What what are you doing? You're belligerent and you're lying. And well, that's what the need for help and the cry for help can look like. You know, like. the gentleman who spoke at the county commissioner's meeting, I spoke to him afterwards, and the one thing that threw line in our little conversation was he was learning self-awareness skills, um, mm-hmm. learning how to be present in the moment and dealing with ego issues. Now, you find that that's some, you know, kind of something that you have to get down to these root causes with these people to kind of address and create that self-awareness to create control or self-control? Absolutely. So what we look at in uh, dealing with people with criminal behaviors is we do an assessment and it looks at the eight factors that lead to criminogenic behaviors. And the top four are all about beliefs, attitudes, and who you hang around. Mm -hmm. So in order to change how people behave, we have to change how they think. And that was basically what he was talking about yesterday in his speech saying, you know, I really had to call myself out Mm -hmm. and say, I'm... I need to do think differently so I can behave differently. And then the bottom four have to do with family issues, substance use, employment, and pro-social activities. So a lot of times we think that the driver for criminal behavior is substance use, whereas it's really not. It's really down in the bottom of the top root of, the, of the root causes. Mm-hmm. So it can be more of a symptom than a cause. And uh, well, it gets a lot of publicity it's it's not really what we're focused on we're focused on how people think so one of the first things they have to do in one of the classes that we have they have to admit what they did and be honest about what they did in front of a group in front of a group that's another thing the young man mentioned Mm -hmm. that i said why do you think certain people fail and certain people succeed and he said they're not willing to get up in front of a group and say what they did absolutely and, and really expose I don't think just the crime or exactly. whatever it is, but their true feelings and all mm-hmm. these things that they've it's been scary. Kind of guiding, you know, hiding, I should say. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's scary. And you can't make victim statements. So you can't be saying, you know, well, this happened to me because, you know, the cops were unfair and pulled me over. Mm-hmm. No. You, take ownership. You got to take ownership and you have to say, I did this. I made this choice. This was the result of that choice. And for some people, that is not easy. And for some of them will tell you that's the first time they ever have done it. Hmm. And they'll fail mm-hmm. multiple times before they get the message that in order to pass that very first step, they have to be honest. So let's get into the process itself. So walk us through that. The prisoner, or I should say, I'm sorry, the re-entrant is being released. Mm-hmm. And where do they go initially? 
So they arrive right to us, and we okay. do an intake with them and set them up with a schedule. And the first things on their schedule are always assessments. So we assess their risk and needs, and we assess them for the need for substance treatment. We are a licensed substance provider for the okay. state of Pennsylvania. So they get, we're a one-stop shop. That was our whole point. And if you notice yesterday, the gentleman that spoke said one of his concerns was how was he going to get there? Well, we provide transportation mm -hmm. throughout the county. So we were able to pick him up and bring him and take him back. Where so you start there with this, mm -hmm. these life assessment and mm -hmm. treatment if they need it. What, is, what does this mean, kind of this assessment? How does that work? So what are we assessing? So we're assessing their past history and their current state. So we're asking them questions about, you know, what have you done in the past? Have you lost jobs? Were you able to manage school? Do you have a substance issue? How long ago has that been? What's your current status with your family? Do you have a good living environment? Do you feel safe there? Those kind of issues. How do you feel about how you were treated by the criminal justice system? That's one of the questions. Now, invariably, they're yeah, not very happy with the imagine. criminal justice system <laughs> didn't work the out. day they're getting out of jail and made to come to see us. But at the end, we do the exact same assessment again and ask them the same questions. And hopefully that answer changes to, I see what I did, I see why it was wrong, right. and now I know what to do. What are the, what are the effects of incarceration? Uh, because we hear a lot about people will get into the system and mm -hmm. come out much worse than they mm -hmm. went in, in some cases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I realize they, they need to take ownership, and of course that's a part of it, but do you see negative effects of incarceration that you now have to address as new issues for this individual? Well, let me say the uh, statistic that John Wetzel, our Secretary of Corrections, who was our jail warden here in Franklin County before he received that position, he gives a statistic that I can't support. I just know that he, he uses it. So let me say that John Wetzel states that one night in jail increases someone's risk of recidivism by 50%. So even spending one night in jail makes you much more likely to return. Mm -hmm. That's the effect. You know, it's kind of like that scared straight right. that didn't work at all. Oh, really? It didn't? Oh, no. Scared straight didn't work at all. Because, it worked on me. I'm watching it in my living room. Well, you were kind of <laughs> like, are you watching it as an adult? Uh, no, it came on, the, I think, didn't the original version come on in the early 80s or something? Okay, so you must, uh, okay, now I'm going to be judgy. Okay, so you were probably a kid that wasn't going to get in trouble anyway, and you were probably afraid, you mm, know, right? Kind of. Okay, so, <laughs> but what they found when they took kids that were at risk into the jail and tried to scare them, they left and said, eh, that wasn't so bad. I could mm. do that. Wow. Because that's how kids think. You know, I remember right? one of the guys took his fake eyeball out. And showed it to the kid. And yeah, I they probably thought thinking, that was cool. I remember thinking, like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> but most kids would think that was cool. Okay. They would be like, well, whatever. Right. You know? So, so that term, didn't work. So, right. we, so we know that jail, you know, jail should be used for those people who are not safe to be in the community. Right. That's what jail and prison's for. And right. there are those people. But what we do know is that we have to change our model of incarcerating people that we're just mad at. You know, the people that maybe they could be helped in another way, that we don't have to lock them up to make the point that what you did is not acceptable for society. I wish we thought that way. Uh, I think when you and I spoke just before the uh, commission meeting, I remember we had a short discussion about how the system seems very weighted 
to the punishment end mm -hmm. and very somewhat uninterested in the rehabilitation end, even though that's the point, that's a point of impact for us as members of the community where these people are re-entering. Absolutely. So do you mind if I share something with Please you? Please do. So um, this is one of my favorite books. This is Brian Stevenson. I might have lost my What's place. the title of the book? Just Mercy. Okay. And he talks, he writes about people who are not um, treated correctly by the system. So people who we call marginal mm -hmm. on the edge. So this is one thing he writes. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Right. That's, that's uh, very true. And it kind of right away my brain went to, what do you, in your head, what do you hear when politicians say I'm tough on crime? Because that, that is the opposite mentality. That, that is the, the, the empathy mentality. That you're a human being, mm -hmm. and we're going to we're going to get you through this, and we're going to make this right. Whereas the politicians with tough on crime, again, it's just I'll, right. I'll throw a million people in jail, and we'll all feel better. Right. Um, when I hear something like that, I think that's someone who needs educated on the system mm -hmm. and the effects of the system, and maybe they need to meet someone like the gentleman yesterday, yes, who could talk about what his experience has been and what really helped him. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what I see. And, and the public, too. I mean, that's why I speak as much as I do, because we want the public to be safe. I'm not trying. I have put people, um, I have discharged people from my program knowing that the end result would be that they would be going back to jail and right. incarcerated for a violation. And I have done that knowing that, it's what I needed to do in order for the public to be safe in right. order sometimes for this person to be safe. And um, we all need to be aware of what works and what doesn't work. So right. that's part of what the coalition's about. We're mm -hmm. trying to educate people so that we all know. Let's talk about this coalition now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just your services. There's, no. there's a whole network that they go through. So if you could talk a little bit about all the services that are in this kind of web Right. And let us know how that works. So the coalition was started. Um, we received a grant and we brought in Melanie Snyder from Lancaster County who helped us through the process of creating the coalition because we knew that we wanted to bring all these like-minded people together and we need everyone to be able to make the system work. Right. So we did invite lots of people from different sectors and we get together and we look at what problem do we have? What barrier is there? And who do we know in the community that might be able to address that barrier and help us with that? And it's been exciting over this last year that we have really been going full force to have so many people be willing to be open-minded and to say, you know, I could do something different and maybe that would be helpful. And maybe it would help me too, because there's a lot of, untapped resources yes. in the people that 
we're labeling as ex-offenders you know hey there's lots of jobs out there and sometimes people won't be hired because of a crime you know a conviction they have when they could very well be a very productive employee right and that's an interesting topic that we were talking about before we got started um you know convincing employers Mm -hmm. that this isn't a gamble right that this is going to work out as i mentioned i worked formerly for a company that had a sawmill where you know it was fairly big risk to say let's take one of these people to the sawmill where you can easily be maimed or killed right. so how do you kind of assuage employers what what is your pitch to them to say look let's do this you know this this person has gone through our program mm -hmm. they've graduated with honors however you describe it so how do you work with that i think what we need to do first is let people realize that um People are not the worst thing they've ever done, which is another Brian Stevenson quote. And to say, you know, if, if I drive down the road and I blow through a stop sign and I am picked up by the police and I get a ticket and maybe I get a point on my driver's license. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that point, maybe my insurance goes up. If I learn my lesson and I start to be a better driver and I don't blow through any more stop signs, in a period of time, that point is going to go away mm -hmm. and my insurance rate will go back down mm -hmm. because I've proven <laughs> that I can be a good driver right. and I, I've learned my lesson. Yeah. But in the criminal justice system, it never goes away. No. It's just there forever. You've got to check that box. Exactly. So I think for local employers who have some leeway so that they can actually say to someone, so you have this conviction tell me what that means what did you do mm -hmm. rather than just look at that and go oh he has a theft we're not hiring him mm -hmm. he has an assault we're not hiring him to actually take a moment and say what's going on with that and to look at that was 10 years ago right and nothing else has happened can so. they can they mention your uh services on an employment form can they say graduate of the day reporting center or some kind of i'm bona sure fides? they could i'm sure they could um it would just be a matter of if they wanted to talk about that or not right right you know? well so. i think an employer would might see that and it could be of some you know relative comfort to say okay right. well look you're so not they've just, done this right you didn't walk out of prison yesterday and now you want a job yeah you know you've actually yeah. put the steps in I want to go back to the steps. Um, I got this off your website, Life Skills mm -hmm. Groups. You have a moral reconnation therapy. Oh, good for you for saying the, saying that word right, because you know it's made up. It's <laughs> I not, not a know real. That. It's not a real word. I thought but... criminogenics was made up. But... Yeah, well... <laughs> what does this mean, and what are you doing in this therapy? So this uh, therapy was developed in back in the '80s by two guys that were in graduate school who went to a prison setting, and the prison said, you know, we have been dealing with these people in this community setting, trying to make decisions about them being ready to go out into the community. And we're doing a terrible job at it because the ones that we think are great come right back in. So what are we doing wrong? So they evaluated the program and they said, you know, it's too subjective because people with those antisocial behaviors that we're talking about are very good at manipulating. So what yeah, we need to do, exactly. So what we need to do is create a program that's very, very objective, mm -hmm. and they have to meet certain criteria to get through Evidence-based outcome kind of thing? Absolutely. So step one is being honest. Step two, uh, it has 12 steps, but it doesn't relate to 12 steps of AA, right, right. but there are 12 steps. So the honest one, I want to stop you right there. Uh -huh. Is this the biggest hurdle? Because if you're, it, you're asking them to be honest about what they've done, 
or what harm they may have caused or these things that they don't really want. Is that one of the hardest, biggest it, hurdles? It's usually the biggest hurdle also because they have to trust the people in the group. Oh, that's got to be a big one. Right. So they're not used to trusting anyone. And now they have to tell mm -hmm. the worst thing they've ever done to a whole group of people. And so step one's usually pretty difficult. I would think so. Then step two can be equally difficult because you have to agree that you're going to trust the program will help you. Ugh. You know, that can they be hard too because they don't trust anybody. anybody. Yeah. So they can pick someone. They can say, oh, you know what? I, I kind of think I can trust my case manager. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe that he is really trying to help me. That's step two. Step three is, um, and it's interesting because they have to commit to the program then and commit to change. And that's hard too, to say, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm willing to do now, this. Now, is that sense of commitment hard because they've suffered so much abandonment throughout their lives? I or? think it's hard for all kinds of reasons and just because it can be new, yeah. something they haven't done. So they go through more steps um, and set goals. Usually goal setting can be a little bit hard because they haven't ever done it before. Right. So they set some goals. You're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So let's work through what a goal looks like. So we do a lot of work with that. And then amazingly, they get to step 11 where they go back and they tell everything that they've learned on every step. And by then, it's amazing because they're standing there with, they can use note cards. Some people do. And they stand there and they have memorized the steps. Wow. They know what they've done. They know what they've accomplished. It's it's wonderful to hear. It's, if sure you, if it I ever need a lift, I just go listen to a step 11 testimony. Yeah, I was just thinking you that's got to be your point of reward. Absolutely. You know? It's it's better than, you know, church on Sunday. You know, it's just so <laughs> rewarding. It's it's um, speaking of that. Great. What is what is the role of religion in all this? Well, we do have uh, one of our work groups is uh, healing communities. And that looks at faith-based um, organizations that could be welcoming to people mm -hmm. who are returning to the community and welcoming in all sorts of ways, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, providing a meal once a month or just um, being aware of what it means to be returning and all the difficulties. Mm -hmm. So we try to educate the faith community so that they can be more open. And frankly, you know, the reality of it is this is not a group of people over here right. and we're over on this side of the They're fence. They're part of us. They're, we're all together. And the more that we can recognize that we're all together, the more change will happen. And, and that's where I see the role of the coalition to try to help us all see that we're in this together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And if you look at it any other way, it's not really gonna work. No, it's us against them. And, yeah. and that's not what it is. Can I give you another yes, quote? Do. Can I, Go ahead. <laughs> do you mind? So this is a quote from Father Gregory Doyle. Father Doyle works with gangs in um, Los Angeles. And he has written this book called Tattoos on the Heart. He has a new book out. Um, and he talks about kinship, and I think that that is what's so important. He said, no daylight to separate us, only kinship, inching us closer to creating a community of kinship such that God might recognize it. Soon we imagine with God this circle of compassion. Then we imagine no one standing outside of that circle, moving ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased. 
We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. At the edges, we join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. That is fantastic. And as you were reading it, all I could think was that is a follower of Christ right there because that's exactly what Jesus would have said and would be doing. I know we're running out of time here. I got to ask one more question. The documentary, did you end up watching it on HBO about the juvenile system? I didn't get a chance to do that, but that's on my to-do yeah, list. Please, so I will. I think, I think you'll I'll enjoy. come back. Yeah, please do. Yes, definitely. I'd love to have you back. There was a, a theme in the documentary about in counseling and in mentoring, people needed to be interacting with people with similar life experiences. Mm-hmm. So kids that were part of gangs, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. they couldn't relate to a person like me if I come right. in to counsel them. Do you find that's true? I find that is true to a great degree, and that's why um, AA and NA work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why peer mentors work. I am starting a group this year. Um, that's on my to-do list, my 2018 goals. We want to start um, a peer mentor group for returning citizens so that they have a place to go and talk about what's hard for them right. with people that can say, I know that was hard yeah, for me too. Experience, and yeah. that is priceless. Yeah, yeah. In the documentary, it becomes very clear that without mm-hmm. that kind of mentoring, a lot of these people aren't going to succeed. Right. And I um, totally believe that, you know, it, well, I'm a social worker. So, you know, I, I've taken a lot of classes in psychology and different things. And Carl Jung talks about our collective consciousness, which is really what is at play when we're talking about AA groups and NA groups and these mentoring groups, or even when we ourselves go to a group, Mm -hmm. whether it's a church group or uh, a community group that we belong to. And we have all these outlets where that collectiveness comes together. And for me, I, I see that as raising our vibrational level so that when you walk out, you feel so much better about yourself. Yeah. That's part of the reason why we, we do go to faith you know, right, services, exactly. right? Because we want to feel better. So I want to be able to give people who are on the margins, who don't feel welcome to, to those settings or maybe do not feel comfortable mm-hmm. quite yet, a place where they can go and be comfortable and be accepted and be able to talk about what's hard and celebrate what su- the successes are. Yeah, so and enjoy that moment of collective consciousness. Yeah, that you were just absolutely. Describing. Because we're all in it together. You know, as long as we can start to see that, then it just life is better for all of us. Yes, and don't is. we all want that? Yes, we do. Right? All right, I think we're just about out of time. Yeah, um, bef- I want to uh, go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we wrap this up. Um, the proclamation yesterday at the county was uh, to recognize April as uh, what Reentry Initiatives Month. Correct. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about um, some events or things that you have scheduled for the month of April. So in April, we do have several things. Um, the proclamation was signed. This morning, I did a roundtable discussion at the Quill Library for uh, Summit go? Health. It was great. It was fantastic. fantastic. It's, it's always, uh, again, that collective energy. It's always great. We're doing a re-entry simulation at Human Service Training Days. That's on Wednesday, April the 18th from 1 to 3. 
That is closed at this point. If anybody would want to attend, they could just contact me and I could and where would that get be located? In. That's at Rhodes, Rhodes Grove Center okay. in uh, Greencastle. Then uh, the community film night um, that the Art Council does, Life on Parole is mm -hmm. the movie that we're going to show. That's on Thursday, April 26th. Okay. Um, the doors open at 530. We'll have the film at 6 runs about an hour and that's a frontline documentary right? that is okay. and it's they do a great uh, job it is a great it's great it's very interesting it's about four people who come out of prison and you follow them to see how well they do um, so then after that we have discussion groups that we have decided to set up so that people instead of just sitting asking a panel questions can actually be part of groups and discuss issues so we're really looking forward to that and think that'll yeah, be that exciting be we'd really like to have a full house for that and then on friday april 27th um salem united brethren church comfort kitchens takes place that's from five to eight that's a free meal for the community and they do that on a monthly basis but they've invited us to to attend and talk about the coalition at okay, that dinner um, we did share a litany with congregations so that they could um, include that in their bulletins for sundays um, through the month of april so we hope that that happens and then finally, on the last day of the month, which I think is very appropriate, Central Presbyterian Church is hosting a vigil on the square um, specifically okay. for people re-entering. Oh, fa great. fantastic. It's, it's great. And then so immediately after that, on May the 3rd, will be our bi-monthly coalition meeting. Okay. We meet from 1 to 3 at the Admin Annex, and everyone's welcome to attend. That That's a great meeting as well. We have a speaker mm -hmm. who is a returning citizen at all of those meetings, and then we follow that up with a connected community partner who uh, ties into that story. So we'll be doing that again, and then we give updates on. All right, lots going on. on. Lots going yeah. on. It's really exciting. It is. It's good so, stuff. Congratulations, by so. the way. Your, uh, your program's clearly working. You're doing really great work. It's not all doom and gloom. There are people out there Absolutely. doing good work, and that's the message. So yeah. thanks so much for coming yeah. on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. Before we go, we have a, a few events of our own that we'd like to plug here. The Franklin County Coalition for Progress, they've started this um, Common Grounds discussion group that meets the second Saturday of every month, and this Saturday will be the second Saturday in April. So they will have Dr. Sarah Grove from Shippensburg University, uh, political science professor there talking about how state and local government works in Pennsylvania and us being here in a commonwealth that can be a little more interesting than it sounds on the surface <laughs> so think about uh, joining them this Saturday from 10 to noon they have free coffee that's provided by Brussels Cafe so fantastic get in coffee on that. yeah delicious yeah. waffles yeah, yeah. and then uh, in June or rather May I skipped a month in May May 12th we have a uh, Franklin County District Attorney Matt Fogel will be speaking at the library for the second Saturday event. So mark your calendar for uh, May 12th, 10 o'clock. And he'll be speaking about? The opioid crisis in Franklin right, County. Big deal right yeah. now. He yeah. was on the front page of the public opinion. Yes, he was. Just today, yeah. uh, addressing that issue. Yep. I guess that's all we have to hit on right now. How about ways to find the progress pod? Find us on iTunes. Find us on SoundCloud. <laughs> Find us on the Franklin County Coalition for Progress uh, Facebook page. 
and the website. And you know, they have their website, which is fccforprogress.org. Right. And if you click on the button at the top of that page where it says Progress Pod, it takes you to our page where we have links to all of our shows. And also, if you just type in progresspod.org, you still go to the FCC for Progress website and click on the button. So awesome. either way, you get there. Yeah, get there, rate us on iTunes, and uh, stay tuned for our next program. And follow us on Twitter. At, follow us on Twitter. We have the best the Twitter feed pod. ever, by the way. <laughs> That's right. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>